So anyway, the general emphasis, uh, like I said, was uh, the pursuit of mysterious uh, spiritual knowledge. Um, anything done with or in a person's body, as they believed it, was of little consequence uh, to God because the body had no connection to or effect on the spirit. Uh, they believed that the spiritual world, which included the mind, was good. In particular, the spiritual activity of the mind in pursuit of that secret, mysterious spiritual knowledge alone was important to God. They were indifferent to moral values and ethical behaviors. Actually, uh, some were, not all were. Um, because the spirit and the body were completely distinct from each other in the Gnostic belief. Colossi was under attack spiritually by many people, but also by the Gnostics. And my understanding of the Gnostics concerning Jesus and creation, which comes from uh, our pastor and from John MacArthur, is that they held the belief that uh, Jesus was an emanation from God and a long line of emanations secreted by God, whatever that means which gradually and incrementally became bad enough to create evil. Jesus, being in that line of badness, then created, thus producing evil within creation, and that's how they uh, say uh, evil entered the world. In their belief, Jesus was not only a lesser god of sorts, or perhaps even an angel of sorts, but that he was also obviously capable of evil. By the way, they also worshipped angels. In their view, you needed Jesus along with something else for salvation. And I, I couldn't understand that if he's evil. Uh, but anyway, Jesus alone was not enough. But that secret, mysterious spiritual knowledge was also needed, which was inherent in each person who only needed enlightenment to bring it out. In other words, that knowledge was already in each person. They just needed to be schooled in a sense of what was already in their mind in order to bring it to the forefront of their thoughts. Once that was accomplished, salvation was ensured for them. I may have simplified it a bit, but I think uh, this is the gist of it all. Listen to what Wikipedia has to say about Gnosticism. And I was really surprised to find this in there. Uh, I don't know why, but I was. Uh, and I quote, uh, Wikipedia says, A common characteristic of some of these groups was the teaching that the realization of gnosis, which is esoteric or intuitive knowledge, is the way to salvation of the soul from the material world. Uh, end of quote there. Esoteric means obscure, and intuitive means instinctive or innate. And then I quote again, uh, Gnostic systems, particularly the Syrian Egyptian schools, are typically marked by, number one, the notion of a remote, supreme, monadic divinity. Number two, the introduction of emanations of further divine beings known as aeons. If I'm saying it right, it's A-E-O-N-S. Number three, the introduction of a distinct, Creator God or Demiurge, if I'm saying that right. 
which is an illusion and a later emanation of the single monad or source. Number four, a doctrine of salvation in which the divine element may be returned to the divine realm through a process of awakening. Number five, aeons are nevertheless identifiable as aspects of the God from which they proceed. However, the progressive emanations are often conceived metaphorically as a gradual and progressive distancing from the ultimate source, which brings about instability in the fabric of the divine nature. Number six, the demiurge or creator God is a lesser and inferior or false God. In most systems, this demiurge was seen as imperfect or evil. Number seven, Jesus is identified by some Gnostics as an embodiment of the supreme being who became incarnate to bring Gnosis to the earth, while others adamantly denied that the supreme being came in the flesh, claiming Jesus to be merely a human who attained divinity through Gnosis and taught his disciples to do the same. Among the Mandeans, Jesus was considered a false messiah who perverted the teaching entrusted to him by John the Baptist. But of course, we know that Christ is all that's needed for salvation and that the Bible from the beginning to the end points to Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. We have the completed Bible, the complete Word of God from which to gain and follow the will of God while fighting heresies. However, Jesus and the apostles only had the completed Old Testament, but that was no problem because it, too, points to Christ. Jesus, after rising from the dead, uh, when he was on the road to Emmaus, walking with two disciples who didn't recognize him at the time, uses the scriptures written by Moses and the prophets to explain things written about himself in the Old Testament. Luke chapter 24, verse 26 and 27, Jesus says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Yes, Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament. Philip, too, used the Old uh, Testament. Uh, when he was uh, talking to the eunuch. Acts chapter 8, verse 35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. We know that the scripture Philip began at was the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Philip used the Old Testament to preach Jesus to the eunuch. The Old Testament points to Christ, and we can find the promise of his coming in Genesis chapter 3, 15, the very first book of the Bible, which we will read in a few minutes. Paul, too, was no stranger to Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament. Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3, says, And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaim, proclaiming to you, is the Christ. 
And so also we see Paul proclaiming Christ to the Colossians as he tells them that the hope of glory, the hope of heaven, is Christ in you. Christ and nothing else. Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 27 and 28 says, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. If you and I want to be complete, Paul tells the Colossians, completeness is in Christ and in him alone. Christ in you. Christ plus nothing else will make you complete. He is all that's needed. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. It says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. If you and I want to make peace with our God, then it is through Christ in who dwells all the fullness, and it is through Him alone we are reconciled to God through His shed blood on the cross, making that sacrifice on our behalf. It is Christ alone and nothing else. Paul says, through Him, I say, as if to tell them nothing else is needed. Christ alone is all sufficient. Excuse me. Colossians chapter 2, verses uh, 8 through 10, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head of over all rule and authority. Christ is not an Aaron. He is not a demiurge or a supreme monadic deity, not an angel, not a lesser God, and not an enlightened man who became God. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. All the fullness of the Godhead dwell in his bodily form. He is God in the flesh. Certainly Paul had this next verse in mind when he wrote this. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 through 12. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I Even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. And there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is the only Savior and the only God and the only way to salvation. He is our life. Most assuredly, the Christian's life is hidden with Christ in God and in Him alone. 
and we will appear with him in heaven. Nothing on this earth, not the greatest philosophical mind or any earthly thinking can, can provide for us an eternity with God. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have been, for you have uh, died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So this gives us somewhat of an understanding of what Paul was up against in writing to the Colossians and the heresies he was trying to correct. Paul wasn't just writing to say hello. Our Lord was under attack in Colossae. And as always, Paul, equipped with the truth, Paul was on the front line expounding the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth of God's Word to believers and non-believers alike. Through the evidence of God's Word, Paul continually proved to them that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Paul defended the deity of Christ throughout his writings and preachings, but none better than in this letter to the Colossians. He proved through all the conclusive evidence in the Word of God that Jesus plus, plus nothing provides salvation. Jesus alone is necessary for salvation. We are in the same spiritual battle today. And like Paul, should be equipped for the defense of our Lord Jesus Christ with His Word to the various groups who hold similar beliefs as the Gnostics, such as the Mormons, who believe Jesus to be a lesser God created by Jehovah, and Jehovah Witnesses, who also believe Jesus to be a lesser God created by Jehovah. And while we are in that spiritual battle, it is not only for the defense of Christ, but also for those around us who could be attacked by such lies, like the church, and as well uh, the lost souls promoting such lies, about our Lord Jesus Christ. Please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. And as you uh, are turning there, I'm going to tell you a little story that I heard the other day. And if you've already heard this, then I apologize, but it meets uh, the need here this morning. A young man was out of work and desperately seeking employment. He, he came across an ad in the paper which read, Seeking someone of physical endurance and stamina, this job pays $20 an hour to the right person of physical ability. Apply at the city zoo. Meeting the curator of the zoo the next morning, the man was informed of the job duties. You see, said the curator, our large, rare monkey died recently, and we have not found a replacement of this rare monkey to place in the enclosure prepared for him, as they are hard to find and replace. Your duties would be to wear this monkey suit of that rare breed of monkey, and all you need to do is act like a monkey, swing from the trees a bit, make monkey sounds, 
eat the bananas when you are fed them, and the, and the, eat the peanuts people throw to the monkeys until a replacement can be found. The man thought it strange, but $20 an hour was incentive enough for him to wear the monkey suit. After the first full day on the job, the man was physically exhausted from swinging in the trees from branch to branch and acting like a monkey. It was exhausting work. Still, the following day he showed up for work, exhausted from the day before, and donned his monkey suit again and began his routine in the monkey exhibit. Later that afternoon, while swinging from the tree in front of a large crowd, he reached for a limb and missed. He fell with a loud plop right into the lion's den. The man was horrified to look up and see a rather large lion looming only feet away from him. You could see the glistening of the lion's large teeth. And in an extreme panic began to yell, Help me! Help me! The lion approached him menacingly, as lions do when they're on the prowl for food. Within inches of the man in the monkey suit, the lion said, Hey, buddy, be quiet or we'll both lose our jobs. Some professing Christians are just like the man in the monkey suit or the lion suit. Around other Christians, they look like Christians and they act like Christians. But in reality, they aren't. They deceive us into thinking they are Christians. And perhaps they even fool themselves into thinking they are Christians. After all, there will come a time when people will come to Christ saying, Haven't we done all these marvelous things in your name? Haven't we done your mighty works? Jesus is going to answer them, depart from me, because I never knew you. Sad words to hear. Hopefully, we have none here like that. If we do, then I am certainly deceived well, because I recognize none of you to be like this. However, if there are some here disguised as Christians, when they know their lifestyle, apart from being here, is far from that of being a Christian, then it is only Christians who deceive, but not God. God cannot be deceived, and he will repay for such acts. Surely the Gnostics entered the church through some kind of deception. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Paul was often accused in the beginning of his Christian life of being a pretend deceitful Christian. Many who knew Paul's background were suspect of his transformation to Christ. And some tried to discredit him and his work for Christ. I know that Paul, too, was often attacked concerning his apostleship as well. He is quick in beginning this letter stating plainly that he is an apostle by the will of God. Paul didn't wake up one morning and decide he would have an encounter with Jesus Christ, at least not the encounter he expected to have. When Paul met Christ, he was blinded and ultimately saved and healed from his blindness within several days and began preaching in the name of Christ. And he also became an apostle. The will of God decided all that for Paul. We've read the account of Paul's conversion and apostleship in the book of Acts, 
And while we have no dispute with Paul's account, some in Colossae possibly did. We can't be Christians for very long without being attacked in one way or another. And Paul was often attacked. We too will be attacked if we are witnessing, making converts to Christ, and equipping disciples. If we serve the Lord in any way, Satan is sure to throw something at us to make us fail or make us stop. The word apostle in the Greek language is, and I'm going to butcher this probably, but it's apostolos, which means sent one or messenger, angel, a delegate, especially an ambassador. Perhaps officially it means ambassador or of the gospel or a commissioner of Christ. A commissioner is simply an official an officer, an administrator on the behalf of Christ, and particularly, in Paul's case, a leader commissioned to take Christ and the gospel to the Gentiles. Today, we are all commissioned to take Christ to the lost, equipping them as disciples, leading them to baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. However, we are not apostles. Acts chapter 1, verse 16 through 17 says brethren the scriptures had to be fulfilled which the holy spirit foretold by the mouth of david concerning judas who became a guide to those who arrested jesus for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry and then acts chapter 1 verses 21 through 22 says therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which Paul certainly was, because he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, as an apostle, took his appointment by Christ as his ambassador to the Gentiles very seriously. From the beginning of his conversion, he boldly preached Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah and Savior of all men, to whoever would listen. Jesus Christ was his Savior, his Messiah, and his God. And he could do nothing nor wanted to do anything except preach Christ to all. Paul wrote 13 epistles to various churches, expounding and lifting up Jesus Christ. Jesus was Paul's life source. Paul was a warrior. In the first part of his life, he warred against Christianity, trying to block and stop others from preaching in the name of Christ. After meeting Christ, Saul soul was changed and his life was changed and even his name was changed after that he began warring against satan and all the heresies he introduced to the church you and i cannot claim to know christ and follow him without the same change we cannot claim christ and not be changed and like paul we must be warriors also following Jesus' example of a warrior. Genesis 3.15 
Moses, relaying what God said, says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. God made the promise to send Jesus Christ as a warrior who would deliver the lethal blow to the head of Satan, ending Satan's reign of temptation towards man's propensity to sin. We too need to be warriors for Christ. Paul was a warrior because his Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, is a warrior. Colossians 1.1 Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. When I start to write a letter, I most often, in the first paragraph, give an idea for the reason I am writing. Paul, whether or not aware of doing so, has already alluded to a major topic of this letter, that being the will of God, concerning not just himself, but the Colossians mostly. There is not a better way to fight heresies than to know the will of God. We'll get into that in more detail uh, probably the next time I teach, which will be on the 24th. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. As in most of Paul's letters, he is also quick to give credit and praise for those who served alongside him. Timothy is someone Paul loved dearly in the Lord, whom he discipled and equipped to be a partaker of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Timothy was not a co-author with Paul in the book of Colossians. A lot of people try to say that. He was probably with Paul when he wrote Colossians and perhaps possibly helped Paul by writing what Paul dictated to him. However, that may or not may not be true. For sure, though, Timothy was a faithful brother in Christ and a good example to the Colossians of a faithful, persevering servant, following the example of the Apostle Paul, applying the Word of God to his life, following Christ, and seeking his will. Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, it says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. The word saints can often be confusing to a new Christian because the Catholic Church uses the word saint to mean someone who is considered to be spiritually superior over the average Christian because they have performed miracles or great acts of kindness bordering on the miraculous. They believe that because of their acts, God has elevated them to the position of saints, usually after their death. Although many Catholic parishioners will not admit to praying to saints, the Catholic Church condones and encourages the practice. The Bible gives a very different definition of the word saints, associating it with all believers in Christ instead of only special spiritually elevated believers after their death, as the Catholics believe. The word saint in the Greek language is the word hagias, which basically means holy. It means holy. Look up the word saint in the Strong's Concordance, and you will find the Greek word hagias. 
Look up the word holy in the Strong's Concordance, and you will find the Greek word hagias. In fact, another closely related word is the word sanctify. The Greek word for sanctify is hagiadzo, which can also be translated holy or holiness or sanctify. In other words, a saint is a holy believer following Christ, a saved person, a sanctified believer in Christ. So when Paul writes to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, if we replace the word saint with holy, it would read to the holy and faithful brethren in Christ. That's exactly who Paul was addressing, the holy and faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae. Denominations are built on the varied and different answers to the question, how is a person made holy? Or how is a person sanctified? Depending on who you ask, you may be told that it is all the work of God alone and not the work of the believer at all. Ask another person, and you may be told that it is all worked out by the believer alone, without God's help. Still ask another, and you may be told it is a combination of both. My definition of holiness is to be set apart for God's use, for God's purpose, always seeking His will and doing His will while living a life in contrast to the wicked ways of the world and in conformity to the truthful Word of God in everything that we do within our Christian life, our public life, and our private life when no one else is watching except for God. The Bible tells us that being holy is provided through God's work alone with our work, which He gives us to do within His work. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Philippians 2.12 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's easy while in church or around other Christians to maintain a certain degree of holiness within us. After all, where should you appear holy? more than in the church where you are a member and in fellowship with other Christians on a regular basis. The appearance of holiness, however, should never be our goal. Our goal should always be that of living and doing the truth of God in everything we do, while in church or while at home or while away from church and other believers. That's pretty much what Paul is saying to the Philippians Don't walk the walk and talk the talk only in front of me. Do it also when we are apart from one another. But he wants them to do it even more diligently now that they are apart, probably because he's not going to be there to encourage them if they begin to slip. In other words, they have to be on their guard and working towards holiness themselves. The Philippians, Paul wrote to, like the Colossians, were already saved. So when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, I believe he's saying, work out the things that accompany salvation with fear and with trembling. Holiness is certainly a part of salvation, as is sanctification. And Paul is telling them they must work it out, figure it out, 
work towards that goal themselves. Yes, we must work towards becoming holy also. However, not alone. Look at Philippians chapter 2, 13. It says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God is at work in us, both to be holy and to have the volition and the desire to accomplish His will. The word volition means will. It also means decision, choosing, preference to do God's good pleasure, His will. And we know plainly what God's will is concerning holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours and your ignorance, but, but like the one but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. One of the places it is written is in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. It says there, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God am holy. And Revelations chapter 4, verse 8 says, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, all, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. When a person gets saved, God, who is holy, dwells in that person. He makes his abode there. He sends his Holy Spirit to take up residence within us. And so just like the temple of God, God wants the believer to be holy, to be a holy dwelling place for him. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 says, If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Believers are the temple of God, and he doesn't want them to defile the temple with sin. Instead, he wants the, the, the believer to be holy and to live holy. In fact, God desires to be worshipped in holiness. Psalm 96 Verse 9 says, Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before Him all the earth. Holy attire in this verse means the splendor of holiness. Worship, worship God in the splendor of holiness. Psalm 29.2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Holy array means the majesty of holiness. Worship God in the majesty of holiness. I'm going to close this study today here. Uh, I'll be back on the 24th of this month, and hopefully uh, I'll pick up right uh, where I left off today. Uh, before I go, I'd like to quote what John MacArthur wrote concerning sanctification and holiness. Due to time, I cannot quote the whole uh, piece that he wrote. Uh, I just chose out several paragraphs. 
concerning three words that are the pathway to sanctification and holy living. The three words are cognition, conviction, and affection. John MacArthur says, and I quote, To help you understand your own spiritual growth and how God's Word works in your life, I want to highlight the key steps in the process of sanctification with three simple words. The first is cognition. God's pattern for spiritual growth starts with understanding what the Bible says and what it means. The meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture. If you don't know what it means, you don't have the truth. So the process of spiritual growth starts with understanding what the Bible says. Cognition leads to a second step, conviction. As you grow in your understanding of the Bible, you begin to develop convictions out of that understanding. Those convictions or beliefs determine how you live, or at least how you endeavor to live. As God's truth takes over your mind, it produces principles that you do not desire to violate. That's sanctification. It's the transformation of your heart and your will that compels you to obey God's word. John Bunyan spent 12 years in jail, but it wasn't the stone and the steel that held him there. He could have gone free if he simply agreed to stop preaching. Instead, he wrote, If nothing will do unless I make my conscience a continual butchery and slaughterhouse, unless putting out my eyes I commit me to the blind to lead me, I have determined the Almighty God being my help and shield yet to suffer. If frail life might continue so long, even till the moth shall grow on my eyebrows, rather than thus to violate my faith and principles. His conviction wouldn't allow him to compromise, no matter what the cost. Biblical truth is established in your mind through cognition. The same truth guides your life through conviction. The third step in the biblical process of sanctification is affection. Throughout Scripture, we see over and over that God's people truly love His truth. As David says in Psalms 19, the Word of God is more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Take some time in the next few days and read through Psalms chapter 119. Keep track of all the times David says he loves and delights in the law of the Lord. Loving God's Word is an inescapable theme throughout the Psalms. And it's an attitude that will be reflected in the process of our sanctification. If you're truly growing spiritually, you don't read the Bible as mere education. You don't read it as a curiosity meant simply for intellectual stimulation. You don't study it just to win an argument. You don't approach it casually or carelessly. And you don't flippantly disregard its truth. If you're truly growing, you come to Scripture eager for the spiritual nourishment it provides alone. 
Just as Peter wrote, like new, newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow. That's in First Peter chapter 2, 2. Your affection and hunger for God's truth will be insatiable, and nothing will keep it from you. But you won't truly love God's word if it's not already shaping the way you live. And it can't shape the way you live if you don't know it. That's why any methods or patterns for spiritual growth that don't start with the study of God's truth cannot lead you to true sanctification. Anyway, I hope this uh, is helpful uh, for you this morning and throughout the week. And I thank you for listening. And if there are any questions, uh, a pastor here will answer them for you. Anyone else? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your precious word, Lord. We thank you for the truth of it. Help us, Lord, to love it. Help us desire it, Father. Um, I just thank you and praise you, Lord, for uh, the fellow that led me to the Lord, John Dunn. I thank you, Father, that uh, he placed your word in front of me, gave me time to read it, Lord, and it it uh, it was very desirable to me when I started to read, Father. And I just pray that uh, you would help each one of us, Lord, to have that hunger and that thirst for your word and for your righteousness this morning. Help us, Lord, uh, to live for you. Help us, Lord, to uh, walk with you the way that you want. Um, Lord, I just pray and ask that you would be with the pastor uh, as he preaches uh, the sermon this morning, Father. Uh, help us to be attentive uh, to him, to your words, Lord. Help us hear your voice and what he says. Help us, Lord, to apply it to our lives. And I just thank you and praise you, Lord, for all that you do. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right.